0: Hello, and welcome to New Perspectives, the occasionally bi-weekly podcast from the Northeastern Political Review magazine. My name is Brian Grady, and I'll be your host for this semester. If you remember my voice at all, I co-hosted a few episodes previously with our former host, Max Huber, who has graduated NEU and moved on to more reliable employment than unpaid podcasting. I hope you'll give me some grace as I find my editorial voice on the show. And as always, be understanding of the reality that we're talking to students. They're not radio trained, they don't have professional microphones, and they're not paid policy experts. This is Amateur Hour, folks, and that's okay. Moving on to this week's show. Today, I'll be talking with Noah Colbert, a rising sophomore and the digital director of Nuper, about the Israel-Palestine conflict and the usage of rhetoric and contours of the discourse on the subject, especially in external countries like the United States and the UK. Two things worth noting. We didn't necessarily get to everything we wanted to in this piece, so feel free to check out Noah's article on our website, which goes into much greater detail on certain elements. Secondly, obviously, this is a fraught topic, one which many people come into with strong preconceptions. I won't pretend that even my own interviewing was free of bias on the subject, though I tried to take a fairly balanced tone. I just ask that our listeners keep an open mind, do their best to avoid falling into the trap of dogmatism, and hope for a peaceful and just solution to this unfortunate scenario. Anyway, getting off my soapbox, time to start the show. Hello, and welcome to the New Perspectives podcast. I'm your new host for this semester, Brian Grady. And today, my guest is Noah Colbert, who wrote an article for our magazine, the Northeastern University Political Review, titled Ilhan Omar, Majority Taylor Green, and the Anti-Semitism Card. Noah, do you want to introduce yourself for a little bit? Yeah.
1: um, So, as you said, I'm Noah. Um, I'm a mathematics and political science major at Northeastern, and I am also currently the digital director of the Political Review.
0: So... Going over your article kind of in a broad perspective, you cover a lot of ground in this piece, which seemed, when I first read it, since it was published June 22nd, mostly inspired by the recent burst of conflict in Israel and Palestine and the political reactions related to these events, primarily in the United States. What would you describe as the central thesis or theme of this piece?
1: I would describe this piece as a
0: look at just the way our discourse
1: about the issue of Israel-Palestine, particularly when it relates to a specific aspect that is very prominent on the like pro-Israel Zionist side, which is the idea that anti-Semitism plays a big role in our discussion. And part of what's noticeable in the title is that I was looking at this through the lens of two Congress women who have been in the news a lot recently, who are Ilhan Omar and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Actually, when I started writing this article it was I started writing this in February, so the last conflict in Israel was in May. So when I first started writing it, it was this was definitely on my mind, but it became kind of more prevalent with the most recent events.
0: Before we kind of get into your exploration of rhetoric and the discourse on this issue, I think one essential step is to be somewhat materialist and look at the history that Bursaw this debate because I think it's easy for people to be very defensive on this issue, no matter what side they take, and at times be ignorant of the history, or at least personally speaking, I was until only a few years ago. So I think it's important to note, and I'll let you follow up on this, of course, um, just from a historical perspective, discussing the actual creation of Israel, because a lot of people, at least speaking for myself and a few others that I know, they essentially assume that Israel was given as a condolence gift of sorts for the very, very real horrors of the Holocaust. And then that country, which was given to Jews, uh, was then attacked out of nowhere by the surrounding Arabic states. And ever since, they've just been defending themselves and protecting what they were essentially given. And that's not entirely historically accurate. And I'll let you kind of lay that groundwork.
1: I guess if we were to, there's a lot of things that we could talk about, but I guess we'd start off, you'd say it was before Israel was created, this land was mandatory Palestine, belonged to the the British, they received it after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and it was said that after a certain amount of period of time, um, the mandate would expire, and then independence would be achieved by the people that lived there. Well, in 1917, so three decades before Israel was founded, the British government basically issued the Balfour Declaration, and this stated that their intention would be to establish a Jewish homeland in mandatory Palestine, and this happens at the expense of the majority of the people that lived there who were Arabic and Palestinian. So, for three decades prior, you have the political Zionist movement, which is encouraging immigration and capital to flow into this country, and they're de- openly declaring their intent to colonize it. So there's a lot of tension leading up to it, and it all culminated in 1948, which was after the UN partition resolution, which gave was going to give Israel fifty and the Jewish people 55% of the land there even though they made up about a third of the population and already owned only 6% of the land, that they were going to get 55% of the land. And even this was not enough because you have Zionist founders like David Ben-Gurion and Menachem Begin and all these other people who were involved in the Zionist paramilitaries that would engage in this ethnic cleansing operation to try to just get as many Palestinians out of where they wanted to found Israel and create a Jewish ethno state. So, 1948, you have 750,000 Palestinians ethnically cleansed, forced from their homes into, most of them ended up in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. And they've been dispossessed ever since. In 1967, Israel invaded the West Bank and Gaza and instituted their military occupation, which has gone on to this day. So when we talk about the conflict right now, we really are not thinking about anything other than this one issue, which is dispossession of Palestinian people. In the West Bank, Palestinians live under military rule. They have zero political rights. They have to go through military checkpoints to get to anything they would like to. They are humiliated at these checkpoints. They're often abused and sometimes even sexually assaulted. They can have their homes demolished at any time for for spurious reasons. Just today, Palestinians in Silwan, a neighborhood in East Jerusalem, had their homes demolished because Israel wants to build a religious theme park. And as bad as things are in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, you have a situation that's even worse where Palestinians, 2 million of them, live in about 140 square miles of what is has been called by the UN to be an open-air prison. There's four hours of electricity every day. 97% of the water is considered to be contaminated and undrinkable. It's just a living hell for Palestinians. And what Israel is doing is at the heart of everything that's been talked about, despite the wishes of the people who would like to make this an issue about anti-Semitism.
0: And to be clear, these people that live in these territories, they still work in Israel and perform plenty of service sector jobs, but have none of the rights of citizens, correct?
1: Yeah. So there are a couple different levels of status for Palestinians, but all of them are defined by being lesser than someone who is an Israeli. So the most dispossessed are those in the Gaza Strip. There's no boots-on-the-ground occupation going on there. Uh, Israel controls the outside of it. They control everything that goes in and out. They control the airspace of it. They, whenever they routinely have bombing campaigns, their military leaders refer to it as mowing the grass. So those are the most dispossessed. You have Palestinians in the West Bank who are subject to physical occupation, and a lot of them do commute to work in Israel, but they are also treated a lot worse. Their movement, as I said before, is restricted. You have Palestinians in East Jerusalem who are trying to be, uh, the Israelis are trying to push them out and to Judaize the city. And you have 20% of Israel's population who are in, actually inside the borders. Now, these Palestinians do have the right to vote, but they are still, there are many laws in the books that discriminate against them. They are treated as second-class citizens they are despised by most of the people that live there who aren't palestinian and there's just an entire media apparatus that is meant to just completely whitewash and deny their entire existence if you talk to israelis they are loath to use the word palestinian they'll call them like israeli arabs well
0: and of course the thing worth noting when discussing citizenship and voting I don't remember the exact statistics, but if say tomorrow the West Bank and Gaza, which Israel does claim some territorial right over, was properly annexed and everyone in it was made a citizen, I believe would Palestinians be the majority in Israel then?
1: Yeah, so depending on what you would add, you would Palestinians would be about half of the population by some if you included everyone they and you let refugees return they would make up the majority it wouldn't be as much of the majority as Palestine, as you no know, as, as Israelis have right now with who can vote but they are the majority of the people who live in this area and like you have a really fundamental contradiction of how Israelis tend to talk about the people that live there and the land because they are, will continuously claim that the land that they have taken in both the war in 48 and in 67, 1967 is theirs, the claim that they won it rightfully, defensively. This isn't borne out by any actual like truth, they did not win these wars defensively, but even if you were to take them at their word, well if you own, if this land is yours then you have a right to the citizens and the people who live there, but Israel doesn't want to do that because Israel would rather have the land but not her people.
0: So now that we've discussed some of these kind of very real material harms that have occurred historically and are currently happening, let's focus on the rhetoric and specifically kind of how the discussion occurs when people try and talk about these harms that have occurred and are occurring. A key focus in your piece is essentially this idea you kind of refer to as tropification of antisemitism, where criticism that shares certain themes with antisemitism but is not meant to be, at least you argue, this is kind of your main argument, is weaponized to try and silence some of this discussion.
1: I would say that, like, in it is widely acknowledged by a lot of people that Israel in American society is treated differently from any other country. Like, if you think about other nations that are political like superpowers in the world, like Russia or China, there's really no, we don't talk about these other countries in the same way. There's no like Chinese political action committee that most of the democratic or and Republican parties go to speak to and fundraise their people don't politicians don't go out and say that they will fight for China or Russia with everything they have. But when it comes to Israel, we treat the country like it needs to be protected at all costs, and this can be seen in just the way whenever we talk about it, inevitably the topic of anti Semitism comes up. And it comes up in numerous different ways. I think the jumping point from this piece is how we look at someone like Ilan Omar, who in twenty nineteen she was told she that she was being anti Semitic because she had criticized the vast power of the Israel lobby, the APAC, and other groups like the AJC and the ADL, and they um, had said that by claiming that there was a vast majority of money being pumped into Congress and politics trying to influence people, that that relates to a specific anti-Semitic trope of that. If you you frequent neo-Nazi boards, they'll talk about how the government and the banks and the media are controlled by Jewish people. And These are obviously not true and they're harmful and definitely anti-semitic, but when you look at how the Israel lobby or people who just support Israel talk about them, they use them in a certain way to try to claim that when you say those sorts of things about Israel, you are also doing anti-semitism. And you can say this about criticism of Israel even when it's true. Like, it's undeniable that the Israel lobby has a lot of power. It's undeniable that the media covers Israel in a very favorable light and is loath to give voice to Palestinians or anyone who would dissent. But because these things, on a very superficial level, you could tie them to already existing tropes, then you can just claim that they're anti-Semitic.
0: So is it essentially... Would you argue impossible to criticize APAC or some organizations using terminology like talking about their spending just because it will always fall into those tropes and you can't – it makes it very difficult to argue?
1: Yeah, I would say that sort of thing. You have a situation where you don't – if you talk about Israel, there are a lot of people who will say that – well, there's legitimate criticism, but when you – do these certain things when you deny Israel its right to exist, when you hold it up to double standards, or when you use tropes, then it becomes anti-Semitic. And this relies on like a lot of vague language, like right to exist, that as I've said before, you, we, nobody uses these phrases in any other context. And it also just relies on, like I would say, real and there is isn't an imagined anti-Semitism that does exist in this country, and I think I'd point that out when we're talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like, it's not correct to say that Ilan Omar is acknowledging a cabal that is trying to control our government in some way, but it also kind of draws upon the fact that there are people in our government who actually do purport those things to exist in other forms.
0: So I think one of the biggest examples of what you're talking about where kind of this labeling of anti-Semitism is used to suppress debate actually did not happen in America. And I think this is a, an example that most of our audience may not be quite familiar with, and that is Jeremy Corbyn, who was the leader of the British Labour Party until a few years ago. And in your piece, you mention him as essentially the largest example of this occurring. So can you kind of go into some details about that? the effect that had on his stature in the party, what that had on the party as a whole, and how, at least you argue, it was a fairly artificial outrage.
1: Yeah, so, for those who are not aware, Jeremy Corbyn was, as you said, the former leader of the British Labour Party, which is like the major left-wing organization or political party in Britain, as opposed to the Conservatives, and then a few other ones, like Liberal Democrats and the Green Party. So Corbyn, I guess you could say, he was like the British Bernie Sanders. He was very much against Britain's imperial projects and was a socialist. And he threatened the power of a lot of people in the British establishment, like their intelligence community. So his party was kind of besieged with this narrative that there was an unspeakable anti-Semitism problem that Jeremy Corbyn... Crossed the line in his criticism of Zionism into anti Semitism, and that he was making Jewish voters in Britain feel unsafe. And a lot of it relied on these very spurious accusations because, I mean, anyone who looks at the life of Jeremy Corbyn, which has shown that he had opposed bigotry, he was like protested apartheid in South Africa. But a lot of it was based on the idea that, well, even if Jeremy Corbyn is not personally bigoted. He has made Jewish voters in Britain feel unsafe. And unsafe not through physical violence, but through um, like through language and through hearing Israel or Zionism or anything you feel connected to, criticize, can constitute a form of bigotry. This was just became a narrative and that was spoken about as if it was true by like media figures and other politicians in like the Conservative Party and also people in the Labour Party who would like to see it go in a more centrist direction and in 2019 they lost an election pretty badly and in after that Jeremy Corbyn resigned and his seat as a leader of the Labour Party was taken over by another man named Keith um, Stonger and he has, like, radically different politics on Israel. He he vowed that he would change the Labour Party's culture, that he would be fighting anti-Semitism. And by that, he meant that he would be, like, disciplining the left of the Labour Party. Like, Labour adopted the IRA definition, which I mentioned a bit, which is a definition of anti-Semitism that's become pretty big among Israel lobbies now as their way to, they call it, define it to fight it. And it basically just makes a large swath of criticisms of Israel and Zionism be labeled as anti-Semitic. And he, there has been a narrative that Corbyn was what was wrong with the Labour Party, and that by getting rid of him, that the Labour Party will get a lot better. And as we've seen in recent by-elections for Labour, this hasn't been the case at all. It's been, it's gotten a lot worse. Labour is losing seats that have been in its strongholds for decades and of course, this hasn't really changed the, the direction that is going in because there is recently, like there are members of the Labour Party who have said that the reason why they're, they're losing voters among Muslims because of their trying to tackle anti-Semitism. And I think that gets into a particular thing that is kind of relevant to the debate about anti-Semitism in Ilan Omar because it's very easy to accuse Muslim people of being anti-Semitic is, You can be Islamophobic or you can say harmful stereotypes about Muslims as much as you want, and you can be rewarded for it in both the American and British media.
0: Yeah, and some of our prior discussions, one thing you discussed, I think a key element when talking about Muslims and Arabs relative to Israelis and Jews is that the concept of anti-Semitism the purveyors of the anti-Semitism, it has moved from being seen as that's what Europeans do in the historical sense and obviously the early 20th century sense, to more being it is the Arabs and Muslims that are anti-Semitic, and that is who largely, outside of key exceptions like Corbyn, gets criticized for it now.
1: This is not to say that there's uh, no anti-Semitism at all in the Arab or Muslim world, but it. A particular phenomenon that I've heard some people determine is, like, philo-Semitism, which is, like, European, like, white Europeans who kind of try to whitewash, like, the history of, like, colonial powers, like, propagating anti-Semitism by just professing their personal love for, like, Jewish people. And you can see this from with a lot of evangelicals who profess their love for Israel and people who try to, like, a lot of these, like, groups that make their living on, like, blowing the whistle on, like, anti-Semitism, it's, a lot of it relies on just the idea that you can, when you say things about Palestinians or Arab people, you can draw upon things like the idea that they're uniquely violent, or that, like, Islam is a, um, a particularly, hateful religion or you can say these old things about like islamo-fascism or like they hate our freedoms and It's very useful for one absolving our country and like European ones of their own like terrible history in anti- of anti-semitic violence and it also it just it minimizes the way in which otherizing people the otherization of minorities is like cuts both ways. Like the same forces that are used to otherize Jewish people are also being used against Muslims. And when we do this sort of thing against Palestinians or Muslim Americans, when we frame them as being uniquely hateful, um, you in turn make things more dangerous for Jewish people because like it's connected. Like you have the same forces in this country that are saying we need to build a wall. We have to keep Muslims out that also are going to Charlottesville and chanting that, like, Jews will not replace us, or who are walking into a synagogue and massacring people because they believe that their Jewish people are behind the plot of immigration.
0: And I think the crucial thing to mention with evangelical support of Israel, or even more secular, real politique support of Israel, is that they view the country as a means to an end and especially amongst religious people, it can, I have a hard time not arguing it as ultimately anti-Semitic as someone who has experience in religious communities and familiarity with the evangelical communities. That support is so that the rapture can occur and those Jews can go to hell so that the Christians can go, can ascend. And a lot of people don't know that or kind of forget that, but that is the point behind a lot of evangelical support of Israel. And it rings a little false to say the least.
1: For those who are not aware, like the rapture is like the idea that in order for um, Judgment Day to come, Jews need to return to Israel and the Holy Land and eventually a lot of like the more hardline evangelicals believe, eventually they will all burn in hell because they don't believe in Jesus. but. On its face it supports the reality of Zionism and so there's been a lot of collaboration and I think that gets harped on although I think another part of it is even among people who don't believe in that I think just good old Islamophobia ends up being a lens through which a lot of Christians view the conflict in the Middle East it's like post 2001 the whole like clash of civilizations thesis behind our foreign policy that it's the the liberal tolerant West versus the backward Islam Islamic community that kind of carries a lot of it even though there are plenty of Palestinians who are Christian which a lot of people are not aware of that and like those sorts of things can kind of get a lot of people to just support this country and I think also with Israel it's with a lot of it's our connection to the Bible like American Protestantism, kind of it has really tried to morph like religion and the ethos of America and the constitution and it seems like kind of the one thing that's missing in that is like is the bible. America isn't in the bible. And if you were to Israel is kind of our link to that, you can see like a lot of settler activity that goes on in like Bethlehem or Nazareth, these areas that Palestinians where some of them of Palestinians have been entirely cleansed from other ones they still remain in Bethlehem being a town that's occupied in the West Bank you know a, a lot of like Jewish people go in like birthright to go to Israel where they will be escorted through territory that isn't theirs but there's some also Christian Christian versions of this which are where um they all end up doing going to see these sorts of things that they view as holy to them
0: would you ultimately argue that this support for Israel in its current incarnation, what it does, is it ultimately more that constructivist, ideological side of, as you suggest, linking America with a proper like religious power? Or is it realpolitik? Or is it some combination of the two, which I realize is the easy way out?
1: Yeah, I would say it's a combination of the two, although I would stress the realpolitik aspect when it comes to our government, because ultimately evangelicals are not necessarily... The um, ones making their decisions, unless it's Republicans who are in power, but a lot of it is just that Israel is basically seen as a client state for U.S. interests. In like nineteen eighty six, you have Joe Biden saying that if Israel didn't exist, we it would we'd have to invent an Israel. Um, the US, Israel is kind of seen as our like our proxy in our current like posturing against Iran just a country that it has a very good relationship with our military and particularly our defense industry because like since they are currently waging just endless war against its population and needs a lot of weapons and so they end up when we send them all this money that ends up getting put into their like when they're buying missiles that are, they're going to drop on innocent civilians in Gaza, all of those missiles end up having to be made by U.S. companies. So it's just like part of that racket going on.
0: So I think to refocus kind of back on this idea of discourse, rhetoric, and labeling as powerful tools in this debate, I want to discuss kind of a trend that I've personally noticed in various discussions, which is pro-Israel groups or Zionist groups utilizing certain what you would call academic or liberal language to defend their actions specifically certain kind of anti-colonial language utilizing the same language as indigenous movements saying this is essentially a land back effort they are taking back what was colonized and you know retaking their claim just like some indigenous groups in the United States want to for their territories kind of the two aspects of that i would ask are how much do you think that's accurate And then B, what do you think kind of the purpose and effectiveness of that is?
1: Yeah, so I think I would probably say that I think this is purely a lot for American audiences, American Zionists. Like Israeli politics don't really need this. They've been pretty far right for a very long time. Like they're pretty open about the sorts of things that they believe need to happen. But for American audiences, especially since a lot of the people they have to court are Democratic voters, it's kind of shrouded in this language of that you would hear on college campuses about self-determination and fighting against bigotry. And like, as you said, like land back also, I think like LGBT rights is like a a
0: favorite. That was going to be a whole second question for me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the indigenous argument tends to go that Israel is actually, since colonial in our current context is a bad word, Israel is actually a, it's a land back movement. It's about Jewish self determination in their homeland, and it will appeal to a lot of the types of people who are on college campus and that stuff. But the problem with it is that there's really no actual truth to it. I mean, if you like, it's not, obviously it's true that Jews had one time thousands of years ago lived in the area known as Levant, but most Jews, Jewish people, have no anthropological connection to the area and have just a lot of like just been immigrating to this area for the past century like if based on israel's law of return any jewish person can come to live here even if you have had no relation to it even there's a video going around pretty recently of a settler from new york who's with a very like a very obvious new york accent like stealing a palestinian's home in east jerusalem but, like, if you're a Palestinian who was kicked out of your village and your family was kicked out in 1948 and you're living an hour from it in the Gaza Strip, you can never return, even though you, you belong there. And also, it's kind of just belied by the fact that when, like, Theodore Herzl and Jabotinsky and all these other political Zionists were writing about their, what they wanted to do... They were very open about it being a colonial movement because it didn't have a bad connotation then. But like now that college campuses are seen as a pretty big focus of Zionist propaganda now because um, the Palestinian movement has been gaining traction and support there like because of the, partially because of the internet and also because it's just morally just and people can see, when people see images of Palestinians being brutalized in their mosques or like by like just jackbooted thugs and that stuff it doesn't you don't really have to be a foreign policy expert to know what's going on there
0: as an american can we have grounds to criticize the actions of israel when we ourselves live is as academics and left-wing students love to point out a, a colonial country that is built off of taking land and taking labor from other people
1: yeah, I think it's definitely something that is like a bit of cognitive dissonance that we have is of sometimes looking outwards towards other nations and not recognizing our own role in this sort of thing. Like, and I think definitely people should reckon with and think about the best way that they can do something about our um, own dispossession of like Native Americans and things like that. But I think part of the reason why this particular issue is so important is because it's ongoing, and it's not... I would hesitate to say like that there's nothing we can do about the Native American dispossession, but like the Palestinian dispossession, we're kind of living through it right now, and we have a chance to stop it. Like, Palestinians are not nearly as removed from their own dispossession. They're... Like, there are some people who are around and the original ethnic cleansing who are still alive and our country is like deeply implicated in it we send israel 3.8 billion dollars every year we provide cover for them at the un security council we send our police officers over there to train where they learn the worst practices from the idf where they learn like racial profiling surveillance techniques and like methods of cut of like suppressing protests and demonstrations. So I think it's definitely important for us to consider this issue in the lens of how it relates to us.
0: And to perhaps cap off on kind of what we started discussing earlier, and then I kind of pulled it back for last year, in just terms of a very common and I would argue effective trope in defending Israel relative to the rest of the Middle East, which is, as some people critically describe it, pinkwashing, which is Israel's relative support of LGBT rights in the region, but I'd be curious your thoughts on that.
1: So pinkwashing, as you gave a pretty good example of it, is has kind of worked as, I think it's offered in the same kind of way that, like, a lot of right-wingers will talk about how um, Islamophobia might be justified, because Islam, and it's Incompatibility with gay rights, so Israel is like has, it is like a I guess you would say not a liberal democracy with a pretty big asterisk, but as a like a financially and economically successful country, it has tended to become a little modern on this issue. Um, in a way that happens in a lot of countries when there's economic stability. I mean, I think it's hard for some people to actually say that when people are living in the Gaza Strip where, like, 50% of the youth has considered suicide, where there's, like, as I said, like, almost all the water is contaminated, people live... Unemployment is well above 50%, the economy is absolutely collapsed. I think it's hard to say that, like, you can see people's... Opinions on like socialists or those things are related to their own problems, when, instead of like what's going on around them. And I also say that Israel is definitely not the bastion of LGBT rights that it claims to be. Like I mean, you might see images of like Tel Aviv Pride, but like also Israel, like same-sex marriages are still not allowed to be performed there they will recognize marriages that are formed in other countries. Israel has also tried to like blackmail and like queer Palestinians into being informants for the IDF at times. And also an interesting fact that isn't, I wouldn't say is directly related, but the West Bank um, same-sex acts were decriminalized in 1951 when it was under occupation of the Jordanian government. And that same thing happened like decades later in israel actually so i would say that that kind of issue is kind of used as a way of just hiding what's going on and even if you would still believe that israel is more liberal on lgbt rights who cares it has no bearing on how it treats the millions of people that live under its occupation
0: well i think this has been an interesting discussion on the importance of terminology, rhetoric, labeling, and more in the Israel-Palestine conflict, and most importantly, the discussions that happen amongst the Western democracies who support Israel largely in its ongoing actions. And I think we also gained a bit of important historical context that others might not have when they see what's going on in the past month with the issues in Jerusalem and then, of course, the Hamas rocket attacks responded to by the bombings of the Gaza Strip. I think that caught a lot of Americans off guard when they even realized that these are ongoing issues. And when people try and respond to them, that that discourse can sometimes be shut down. Well, Noah, do you have anything else to add before we wrap up?
1: No, I don't really think I would add anything other than, I mean, this is an issue I'm very passionate about and at Northeastern, the group that talks about this a lot is the Students for Justice in Palestine. And I would encourage anyone who's listening to this to like follow them on social media and try to take a look at what we've been trying to do to promote this issue on campus.
0: Alrighty, and do you have your own personal plug? Yeah, I guess um,
1: my Twitter it is um, Colbert underscore Noah.
0: Alrighty then. Well, we look forward to seeing your future work in Newper and thanks for coming on today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Once again, I would like to thank Noah Colbert for being my first guest on this season of New Perspectives. As I mentioned in my intro, we didn't even get to everything we wanted to talk about, so check out Noah's piece on the NewPer website for more arguments and details regarding the situation in Israel-Palestine and the ongoing debates surrounding the topic. Obviously, this was a bit of a challenging subject to do as my first show as host. I doubt a more contentious or controversial subject could probably have been picked, but I hope you all appreciated the chance to hear a take on the issue, which remains a substantial departure from the official line from both the U.S. government and many major politicians. That is, hence the name of the show, somewhat the point of this entire podcast, to open up our listeners to new perspectives. They won't always be something you can agree with, and that's all right. But at the same time, as a host, I don't want to create false equivalency either. Some ideas and advocacy stands up to scrutiny better than others at any point you feel I didn't challenge my guest on quite the right point, allow me to apologize in advance and say that I'm always trying to improve as an interviewer and as a student of political science. To wrap up, if you're a writer at NewPer or a student at Northeastern who recently wrote a piece about or adjacent to politics, feel free to reach out to our email at newperpodcast@gmail.com. gmail.com. If we think your piece is novel or well-written, we'd love to have you on. To other listeners, I also recommend you check out our other NewPer contributors at our website, nupoliticalreview.com. Once again, I'm your host, Brian Grady, and I hope you have a lovely day.